This podcast comes with a warning. It includes discussions about suicide, pornography, and abuse. You're sitting in an office, checking your phone. You're scrolling through Insta, you're looking at Facebook, you're checking WhatsApp. And then you get a message from a guy in your office. He's a nice guy, he's been showing you some attention over the past few months, and you've been getting the feeling he was interested in becoming more than a friend. But you didn't feel the same way. And when he suggested it was time to move the relationship to the next level, you told him no, you just didn't feel that way. He had been kind and polite to you, but lately he's been acting kind of weird. And then you open the WhatsApp message, and it's got an attachment, a video. So you press play, and your entire life changes. To put it simply, an admirer found a video in a porn website, and I was in the video. It was filmed secretly. The film is 10 years old, and yet he could still recognize that was me. Back then, I was a student. It was secret filming, and he could recognize me in the video. This is a woman who is asked to be called Laura. It's not her real name, nor is it her real voice. Ten years ago, she was in university. Now she lives in Hong Kong and she's got a successful career. We're using the original recording and transcript with a voice actor to bring you her story. And it's a story that's happening to millions of people right now. However, it's mostly women affected by this. Women are having a very specific experience of something now known as image-based abuse. You've probably heard of the phrase revenge porn, when ex-partners upload intimate videos to social media to get back at the person who broke up with them. But experts say that this term fails to highlight the perpetrator's full range of motivations, as well as the impact on victims. It's all part of a much, much bigger problem. I hadn't thought about starting a relationship with him, and when I rejected him, he called me a slut. He tried to blackmail me, force me to be with him, have sex with him. He threatened to leak the video on forums or the work group on WhatsApp or have sex with me without any form of contraception. This is what began six months of threats and harassment for Laura, and it escalated. He was waiting for me downstairs outside where I live. He kept calling and asking me to meet so he could threaten me. And when I tried to make it rational to resolve it, he said he would rather ruin his status and reputation than quit. I then told him if he makes it public, I will take action too, because I knew he had started a family. No one's going to benefit from it, and this will harm us both. He said he doesn't care. Welcome to Behind the Story from the South China Morning Post. My name is Laura Westbrook, a senior reporter, and normally this podcast talks to the journalists, editors, photographers and video producers working here in our office in Hong Kong. But right now, you are listening to something special. It's a podcast based on a three-part series from an historic collaboration between the South China Morning Post, the Korea Times in South Korea, the Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism, and ABS-CBN in Manila, as well as Indonesia's Tempo magazine. This is the culmination of a six-month investigation into the extent of image-based abuse in Asia, speaking with 16 survivors in nine different locations across Asia and Europe. 
This project was supported by funding from the Judith Nielsen Institute's Asian Stories Project. But the person who led this cross-border collaboration, which produced a series of in-depth features, is my colleague from the Asia Desk, Raquel Cavallo. My name is Raquel Carvalho. I am a correspondent with the Asia Desk. I cover stories across Asia, mostly focused on human rights, migration, human trafficking and gender issues. So tell us how this project started. Early last year, we pitched a few ideas to the Judith Nielsen Institute for their Asian Stories project, and they were interested in this topic of image-based abuse. We at the SMP felt that this was an underreported issue, and we were interested in exploring the scope of sex digital crimes and its multiple layers. So at the time, there were many stories around these issues, but there wasn't comprehensive coverage. And we realized that the Asia-Pacific region has the world's largest number of internet users, and yet image-based abuse remains an overlooked issue and survivors still face a lot of victim blaming and stigma. At the same time, it was also a very timely issue because more than ever, people were spending a lot of time online and NGOs were reporting a rising number of victims of image-based abuse amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. And how did this project become a multinational effort? Getting support from the Judith Nielsen Institute involved setting up an international collaboration, which made perfect sense because many of the crimes related to image-based abuse are cross-border cases. So I thought of potential reporting partners and we ended up inviting news outlets from Indonesia, South Korea and the Philippines. But let's get back to the other Laura, dealing with this man trying to blackmail her with a non-consensual video featuring her having sex with someone else 10 years ago, a video that he had found on a porn website. It's getting on to six months of being harassed by this man, but Laura is determined not to let it affect her and she's definitely not giving in to blackmail. But she hasn't forgotten what the threats she received could mean for her life. First, it's a ticking bomb. I don't know when he'll resurface and do something outrageous again or harass the people around me. This is something that, when you think about it, you'll feel worried. But the impact is not so pervasive that it bothers you every day because there are other things I need to attend to every day. It does have a substantial impact on one part of her life. This has made me have second thoughts about pursuing relationships because I don't know how they... As ordinary people visit these porn websites and say, if he knew me for a while and they already saw that film and thought of me as a slut, even though I think sex per se is normal for adults, I'm the victim here. Why am I the one being called a slut? But I'm a rather rational person. I know that this is not my fault. She can rationalize it for herself, but there's one big problem she can't deal with. The only thing I can't get over is having to explain it to others. And this is when I think about the people I'm seeing in the future. I will think, what if he knows about the video? And what if we were in a good relationship? That's my fear. 
After the blackmailing incident, I had a few people whom I was interested in dating, and when everything is going really well, I have this feeling of reluctance and fear. And then, when we're becoming more intimate, I think this is like those who have experienced trauma. I'll cry. It'll remind me of the guy who blackmailed me and when he threatened to have unprotected sex with me. These reactions have really puzzled every ex-boyfriend I've had because I would cry and become emotionally unstable when they were becoming more intimate with me. And I refused to tell them why. All I could say to them was, I can't. A few friends knew about it and I didn't need to explain to them much, but I didn't want to go through my past or this blackmail incident with my partner. Then out of the blue, I received this video. Like, I think this is what traumatized me most because I didn't want to explain it from the start again and I didn't know how he'd think of me. And that's what I feared most. My worries were that my partner might find out about it. Did she go to the police? Did she take action? Should she get a lawyer? And if she does, who does she direct the lawyer to contact? The blackmailer or the person who shot the video? I asked my lawyer friend for advice. The conclusion we had come to was that we can only write a warning letter to the one who distributed the video. There's not much we can do with a blackmailer. We did even try to contact the porn website to remove the video. But to write a warning letter, it costs quite a lot, and I knew that it would be of no avail. I don't want to send this to the person who did it 10 years ago, but he... I don't know whether there are other victims. At that time, I just didn't want to delve into a matter that happened 10 years ago and discuss it anymore. Because even if I... First, I didn't know I was being filmed. I was angry with him. But I'd rather be angry with him for a short while than talk to him again. Because I don't know what he'll do to me if he receives the warning letter. Plus, we haven't been in touch. You've had nothing to do with each other anymore. I'd prefer to stay out of any sort of relationship with someone whom I no longer am in touch with. I accept this has happened, but I don't wish it to snowball or escalate into something else. There are laws against secret photography, right? There are laws against blackmail. Did she consider taking it to the police? I will definitely not take it to the police. Like I've said, Different people will make different choices. Some people would like to see the perpetrator get... Well, I bet every victim would want those who threatened them, disseminated the film or shot the film to be caught and jailed. But this is what Laura, like so many other people in her situation, is afraid of. But reporting it, going through the judicial process and waiting for the verdict? You need to watch the video again for countless times or go into detail about it. I think as a victim, it may do them secondary harm. Even if our initiative from the outset is to make those who have done wrong face legal consequences or to see them jailed, we're going to hesitate to take action because of the nature of those procedures. This is her experience here in Hong Kong. In March 2021, the Hong Kong government announced it will create a new law criminalizing non-consensual intimate recordings, including upskirting and taking photographs down a person's top, as well as publication or threatening to publish intimate photos or videos without permission. The maximum jail term would be five years, and some offenders might end up on a register of sex offenders. 
This legislation is expected to go into effect by the end of the year. But for women elsewhere being targeted by this abuse, the situation is also difficult. In Indonesia, some women who have had their intimate images distributed without their consent were themselves charged under the country's anti-pornography law. And in many countries across Asia, there are examples of how the first responses from police and authorities often blame the victim. And this is on top of the obstacles already in place in socially conservative societies. But the issue of image-based abuse is not confined to cases involving an angry ex. This investigation uncovered an entire ecosystem of online groups in Malaysia, Singapore and South Korea who are posting, swapping and trading images of women, girls and children. This story starts with another woman and she too has received an alert on her phone. Whereas Laura was in Hong Kong, Amala is in Malaysia. And it's not one man contacting her. It's a whole bunch of men, all sending her requests to follow her Instagram account. She has no idea what's happening, but later her friend lets her know that images she posted to Instagram, as well as her username, have been posted to a Telegram channel called V2K, which has some 40,000 members. And it's men from that channel who are now crowding into her mentions wanting to follow her on Instagram. Even though WhatsApp is hugely popular all over Southeast Asia, the one thing that makes Telegram different is the ability to start a channel where everyone gets to contribute, unlike WhatsApp. And you can hide your number as well as use a fake name. And this has created a new problem in the world of image-based abuse. Telegram became huge in Hong Kong during the protests of 2019, when people became increasingly concerned about encryption and privacy of messages sent from their phones. But that's only for private one-to-one -one messages. Telegram channels have been criticized for all sorts of malicious content, from terrorism to rampant misogyny. And it was the focus for this investigation for Raquel and her team. Earlier this year, the Singaporean government announced it was working to create a new alliance aimed at tackling harmful online content, especially when it targets women. And there's also talk of the government introducing new laws against the distribution of voyeuristic material and non-consensual intimate images. But in the meantime, Singaporean women, as well as some men, are volunteering to fight back. Um, so my name is Nisha Rai. I'm currently studying political sciences and South Asian studies in NUS. That's the National University of Singapore. Besides being a full-time student, Nisha is also a volunteer. Her involvement started earlier this year. When it was in March, what happened was that I chanced upon a tweet where there was this specific individual who had mentioned that her pictures were circulating in these um, Telegram groups. And Nisha has experience and training as a first responder to sexual assault incidents. 
So given that I had training from there, I felt the need that it was that specific moment that I could put my training to use where I went to reach out to the victim and I asked her whether she was doing fine or whether she was doing emotionally okay because personally I feel that everybody's very quick to is very quick to you know hold the perpetrators accountable very quick to talk about everything that's happening but I feel that not everybody's as fast in reaching out to victims and getting to know whether the victims themselves are doing fine or not and when Nisha reached out to the victim, she learned about other volunteers who were trying to infiltrate and take down Telegram groups which were sharing illegal and non-consensual content. Now she's part of a group of 20 young women and men who monitor Telegram channels and chat groups. But it's not always easy. Um, so in these groups where the pictures are circulating, in these groups at least, frankly speaking, you can't really put a face to the name and you can't even put a name to the name because these people conceal their identities and what they do is that they remove their profile pictures, they remove their telegram handles or they put some random name that you're not able to necessarily identify. They hide their handphone numbers because when you join such groups, they kind of have a preamble at the start where they tell you that, okay, if you join these groups, then change your name, change your privacy settings, ensure that nobody can identify you. However, some users have not been so careful. Some people whose pictures were still like present in their accounts and there were some people whose like handful numbers were still there. And through such accounts, Nisha and the volunteers could find out who these Telegram users were. These perpetrators are basically like from Singapore, from Malaysia, Indonesia, um, I, I, I perhaps probably even India as well. So these were like some of the demographics at least that we could tell. And majority of them we believe were men. And the men and like their ages, they aged from like even like as young as 16 to as old as in their mid-30s. And these men have various motivations for joining the Telegram chats. One of the motivation definitely includes them wanting to fulfill their sexual desires because in one of these groups, this specific the specific admin himself had mentioned that, oh, um, we have created this group to satisfy the sexual desires of all men. There's also money involved. And another aspect is the financial aspect where what you can do is you can join these specific groups and you can join in as like a member of this group where you can have a, a monthly subscription, yearly subscription, you know, you can choose what you want and you can even pay by cash, you can pay by bitcoins, you can pay by like anything else, you know, that whatever suits your needs. And some are doing it as an act of revenge on a former partner. What some of the men at least do is that they sell revenge porn to the specific admin and in that way, not only do they get the financial benefits of it, they also get like the satisfaction of taking revenge on their ex. But once these photos and videos are shared in an online chat, the process of taking them down gets difficult. I reached out to one victim and this one victim had told me that her ex had, you know, had released her videos in the name of revenge. And even though she had lodged a report and everything, the problem is that the admin is the one who ultimately has the video. So even if actions are taken on the perpetrator who had sold the videos, the admin will still be able to circulate everything because ultimately the video is in his possession. So it's a very, very complicated process because there are too many people having access to one file itself. There's not just one Telegram channel. Since March, Nisha has sifted through 80 Telegram channels dedicated to sharing, swapping and selling images. They have like very obscure names where the names are literally like 
describing women or sexualizing women, objectifying women, and they have like specific sections. Even if let's say, for example, you're interested in a teenage girl, then they have like Singaporean teenage girl group, for example, where in this group they send like TikTok videos, Instagram accounts, Instagram pictures, possible nudes, and a possible uh, videos of the girls. And that tend to be probably taken by their partners. So these are like the various things that you would see in the chats, and these chats tend to be very active. So at times, like in a day, you would easily get like maybe thirty to forty pictures and videos of girls, and even minors. In some of these groups, there's even like package deals if you wish to buy like nudes and pictures and videos of a girl. If let's say you wish to like if you wish to access a specific type of content, like in one of the groups there, there's even child pornography where you can request for the kind of child that you want to see and you are able to buy that for like as low of a price as 20 ringgits which is in singapore probably i guess maybe 5 to 6 dollars 6 singapore dollars that's less than 4 and a half us dollars nisha has contacted various authorities to get them to act on her case The very first thing I did was I went to email Telegram, but I have not gotten any response from Telegram till now. She hasn't heard anything from Telegram yet, but she's been reporting on individual Telegram chats. Literally every day, like when I mean every day, like every day, I would be reporting the pictures and videos that are sent out in these groups, and I would file them under pornography and I'll file them under child abuse. Nisha has also launched a petition. I raised a petition, and the reason of the petition was really to garner awareness regarding this matter. That it was something that was supposedly tackled last year, but it you know resurfaced this year. She's also made two police reports since March 2021, but progress has been slow. The only thing that I have heard back is the fact that they are looking into and they are investigating. Other than that, I've not heard much. In terms of 80 groups, approximately 20 groups have been taken down, because I guess. Everybody kept spam reporting it, so they had to look into it. But the remaining sixty that are, for some reason, very very active, for some reason, have not been taken down yet. Singapore is a highly developed city state. It has the sixth highest GDP per capita in the world, and its education system is lauded as being one of the best. But the prevalence of sexually exploitative content reveals the cracks in the island society. I guess with the male culture here is that they it's a very short like they see what's happening around them or they do not have anybody who's correcting them. I feel I think that is something that's pretty common in most areas at least where there's nobody telling them that hey that is wrong you shouldn't be doing that. And even the sexual education in Singapore it's very it's very myopic where it's geared towards you know absence is key instead of the fact of respect consent and boundaries which is something that is very very important. These days, Nisha spends most of her spare time reaching out to girls and women who have had their images or videos leaked on these channels. So what I do, what I advise victims at least, is that if they wish to take legal actions, they can do so by you know lodging a police report. But that is only if they are comfortable and emotionally ready to do so, because the entire legal process can get very tiring and it's pretty long at the same time. So what I tell them to do is that only when you're emotionally and Emotionally and psychologically ready to do so, then go for that. If not, do not take the step yet. She also directs victims to the Sexual Assault Care Centre at Aware, an NGO in Singapore which focuses on women's rights and promoting gender equality. 
they can speak to a respondent and to understand better what else they can do for advice and for possible support and possible further questions should they have any regarding the legal process, the healing process and whatnot. But more than anything else, Nisha lends a sympathetic ear to the victims. You know, just be a listening ear. I think that's very, very important because many a times you just want someone to listen and someone to confide in. And she remains committed to helping victims of image-based abuse. I think for me at least, like, the online space, the physical space, it should be safe for everyone. It should be a safe space. It shouldn't be a space where you enter and, you know, you feel threatened, you feel afraid, you feel scared. I do not want anybody to feel that. If I do not wish to feel that way, then I would never want anybody else to feel that way. And if I know that I'm in the capacity and I'm able to make a difference at least in one person's life or at least able to help out one person or at least be a listening ear for one person, I know I have done something good. It's something that I hope that at least in time to come, I'm able to to raise more awareness on. I'm able to get a, a wider and larger support group. I'm able to, you know, garner more resources that I can use and utilize to help out victims and survivors. But the fight against being filmed or photographed without consent is at its most intense in South Korea. It's a nation struggling with a problem that appears to be getting worse. To get an idea of the scale of the problem, in South Korea in 2008, less than 4% of sex crime prosecutions involved illegal filming. That was 585 prosecutions. By 2017, South Korean authorities reported 6,615 prosecutions over illegal filming. 98% of the perpetrators were men, and 80% of their targets were women. In 2018, South Korean women had had enough. They marched in the streets of the capital city, Seoul, demanding justice. Some carried signs declaring, my life is not your pawn. Their chanting, dudes who watch dudes upload, detain them, punish them severely. And in at least one case, that's what happened. In 2020, a 24-year-old man named Cho Jubin was sentenced to 45 years in prison. Cho was known by the alias The Doctor, and he was found guilty of operating an online sex trafficking ring on Telegram through a channel named The Nth Room. The Nth Room had circulated explicit and sometimes violent content of women and girls. Perpetrators would blackmail women and children into performing sexual explicit acts on camera. About 260,000 users paid for and watched these videos. And most of them paid in cryptocurrencies, with some spending up to one and a half million won, just over 1,300 US dollars, to view the content. The story horrified the country. The ones who exposed Cho and his sextortion ring were two female university students. They call themselves Team Flame, and they don't want to be identified publicly. But Raquel knows a little bit about who they are. At the time, they were aspiring journalists and they were looking for a social issue to investigate, to submit an entry to an investigative journalism competition. So they decided to look into digital sex crimes. And this issue in particular resonated with them because 
as many of the victims, they were also women in their 20s living in South Korea. They found an illegal porn site called AV Snoop, which led them to Gotham Room, a telegram chat room which was sharing sexually explicit content. They then traced this content back to the nth room. What they found was a lot more than what they had imagined. They ended up being undercover in these telegram groups and saw very disturbing content involving girls and young women. And for months, Team Flame were on these sexually explicit and degrading chats, trying to find out who was behind it all. They had to blend in and interact with other users as they witnessed videos of underage girls being forced to bark like dogs and women carving the word slave onto their bodies with a knife. We've used a computer-generated voice to protect their identities and read from a transcript of their interview. This is what they found. The Gotham Room was a kind of the first gateway to the nth room in Telegram. As we entered the Gotham Room, there were about 1,000 perpetrators in the room, and the announcement of the room included a sort of summary of personal information of the victims of nth rooms and the list of their videos. The members uploaded URLs of other group chat rooms from time to time. Those rooms were where a lot of illegal porn was uploaded. Within only two hours after we realized the existence of nth rooms, each of us entered about 30 rooms or so. It took a while before the two students made sense of what they were witnessing as they scrolled through hundreds of shocking conversations and violent images. We didn't want to believe it, so we kept doubting it for a while. We thought that it is something that cannot happen in 2019 in Korea and felt strong disgust and helplessness. People generally think this is limited only to some losers and it has nothing to do with them. But we learned that so many people around us are exposed to and are engaging in this act of sharing sexually exploitative content. Team Flame eventually published their findings in an article. Not only did they win the journalism competition, but they also got the police and the government involved to conduct further investigations. Authorities have since been able to identify dozens of people through their cryptocurrency accounts, and they found at least 74 people, including 16 underage girls, who were tricked and blackmailed. Moon Hyung-wook, another major player in the case, received a 34-year sentence. Other trials related to the case are still underway. Members of the public urged authorities to reveal the identities of the 260,000 users. And the National Assembly has since passed a string of laws to make digital sex crimes easier to prosecute. Possessing illegally filmed sexual content is now illegal in South Korea. Even though the key figures were arrested, sex crimes are still being committed in Telegram. We don't think it is over because we still monitor the chat rooms, and there still exist rooms with thousands or tens of thousands of people, and illegally filmed videos and sexually exploitative content are still shared there. Those in the room try to keep a low profile now as the case has recently been made public, and there is a move to arrest the perpetrators. But they say in the rooms, let's resume when things get quiet. So we deeply feel we should keep an eye on them and punish them.
This next chapter takes place on opposite sides of the world. Daniel is in his bedroom in Scotland, texting with an American girl in Illinois. And soon enough, they begin swapping pictures online. But what Daniel doesn't know is this girl doesn't exist. She's the creation of a gang based in the Philippines designed to lure him into a trap, which is exactly what happens. She asks Daniel if he would like a live video chat, and he does. The gang secretly records the video and then contacts Daniel with a simple demand. Unless he pays them off, they will send this video to his family and friends. Daniel is utterly alone, afraid of what will happen, and tragically makes the decision to take his own life. This was in July 2013. Daniel became a high-profile victim of a crime now known as sextortion. One year later, an international police operation aimed at the kinds of sextortion gangs who targeted Daniel was organized in Singapore when officers from the Interpol Digital Crime Center met with police officers from Hong Kong, Singapore and the Philippines. Not long after, raids were conducted in four cities across the Philippines, resulting in 58 arrests, including the man suspected of targeting Daniel and a number of other British nationals. The operation was praised as a success, but eight years on, Daniel's family has yet to see justice. One of the issues complicating investigations is the multiple jurisdictions involved and the need for courts issuing warrants, prosecutors and police departments in different countries to communicate and coordinate effectively. The other is technological. The Philippines uses an internet protocol that hosts thousands of users on one IP address, as well as the ongoing issues of criminals using VPNs to hide their real locations, as well as using encrypted apps like WhatsApp. And it's no surprise that the pandemic and lockdowns forcing us all inside have only made this problem worse. It was February this year, during the second lockdown in Britain, that a 20-year-old student, like most of the university students his age, was confined indoors. He's sitting in his room, alone, in between online classes. He starts chatting to a young woman online and checks her Instagram account. She appears to him to be either South Korean or Chinese. She asks him does he want to have a video call over Google Hangouts. He dials into the Hangout, and sees a woman taking her clothes off. But the video is glitchy and keeps switching to a black screen. I didn't know it was a fake video. This is not the real voice of a young man we're calling Richard, one of the thousands of victims of sextortion reported in the United Kingdom this year, and one of the many victims interviewed for this series. Back in Richard's bedroom, and the Google Hangout suddenly cuts off, and a new video appears. Suddenly, there was a recording of me masturbating on my phone. I started to panic. And then he receives a message. If he doesn't pay 400 pounds, roughly 560 US dollars, into a bank account in the Philippines as soon as possible, the video he has just seen of himself will be sent to his friends, his family, all of his contacts on Instagram. So he makes the payment. But it doesn't end there. 
he gets another message. It demands he paid £200 per month for the next year. Richard is faced with a choice. It took me two days after the event before telling my mum in person, as I was quite ashamed, really, that I was naive and had fallen for this. But that's how they work. They make you feel shameful and guilty, just so you can pay. He decided to tell his mother what happened. He was ashamed, afraid she would be angry at him. But that's not what happened. Instead... She even helped me to gain the confidence to go to the police. And I did. Once again, local police are unable to help Richard because the scammer was based in the Philippines. Richard avoided the demands of the sextortion scam. He deactivated his Instagram account. But the damage to his mental health was substantial. I couldn't focus at all. I just kept thinking about it. When it first happens, you feel isolated. You feel you don't know anyone who's gone through this, and you don't know anyone to turn to. But Richard is lucky. Not only does he have supportive friends and family, he does find help. There's an online group in the UK where victims of sextortion share their stories and support each other. What I've taken away from this experience is to not perform explicit acts with a trusted person or a stranger online because you can never really know the person's intentions. The British National Crime Agency's Anti-Kidnapping and Anti-Extortion Unit recorded more than 2,600 cases of sextortion last year. That's a 62% increase since 2019. So who are the victims of sextortion? This is what the investigation uncovered. While both men and women can be victims, most experts and authorities we spoke to said that sextortion cases usually involve male victims in their 20s to 40s. But there are also teens and older people being targeted. And how do these people fall into this trap and become victims of this crime? We spoke to survivors in multiple locations, including the UK, Ireland and India. And according to many accounts, uh, victims are usually first approached on social media, mostly Facebook and dating websites. Then they are deceived by the online conversations and by the use of fake videos. And when the criminals get to victims' trust, they usually capture intimate videos of these men and then they start blackmailing them. Who are these sextortion gangs in the Philippines and what's their motivation? Their motivation is to make money. Experts say that most of the criminals engaging in sextortion are mostly based in the Philippines, Morocco and the Ivory Coast. The amount of money they demand varies widely. For instance, we interviewed a young man from the UK who was filmed in an intimate moment and he ended up sending about 500 US dollars to an account in the Philippines. But even after making this payment, he wasn't off the hook because the scammer then asked him to send about 200 US dollars every month for the next year. And uh, when it comes to the Philippines in particular, the chief of the cybercrime unit told me that those engaging in sextortion are often unemployed people who live in the country slums. 
Essentially, they find it an easy way of making money. And when people see their neighbors being successful, this illegal business expands. And while there are reports that some of these groups operate from actual offices, authorities also say that many people are operating from their own homes and it's quite difficult for the authorities to be able to pinpoint their locations and so on. Now behind this story was the process to uncover all the things you've just heard. This is what Raquel and her fellow reporters faced in putting together this series. One of the greatest challenges of being immersed during several months in such a dark world was that we had to go through so much disturbing content. It did take a toll on many of the reporters involved because we had to conduct many sensitive interviews with victims of image-based abuse who were experiencing issues like depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And it was relentless. Like every day we would see more content coming up, even after reporting some groups. So there was one group in particular which focuses on content around children. And I reported the group to Telegram through their app because you can flag the group on their app. And nothing happened really. And I know that other people reported that group in particular, and there is still like dozens of posts every day with images, videos that are quite shocking. There were also some security concerns. For instance, when approaching people who were engaging in sextortion, leaders of gangs and so on. And obviously, we also had to take precautions while monitoring Telegram groups, as we know that activists who previously went undercover in these groups were cyberbullied and their personal information was also shared online. So these were some of the challenges we faced. And then there was a huge concern throughout the project to represent survivors and their stories in a fair and dignified manner, while making sure that we wouldn't put their safety at risk. So tell me, how did you get these people to come forward and share their stories? It was obviously challenging because there needs to be trust and many of the victims were traumatized. Some of the victims we interviewed for this series were experiencing issues such as depression and anxiety. So it was a delicate balance between gathering all the information needed for the stories and making sure that we were sensitive and showed respect for the victim's trauma. One of the interviews that stays with me was with one of the first survivors of image-based abuse who I spoke to for this project. Raquel is talking about Laura, the woman from Hong Kong we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. And we had to take a lot of care and time to conduct and process interviews like hers. So what happened after this series of articles was published and what kind of response did they get? Well, there were different uh, responses. Uh, some people, they, they found it surprising. They didn't realize that this was such a major issue. Uh, when it comes to survivors, some said 
they felt touched and they said they were happy to see that this issue was finally receiving this level of attention. And Raquel was also approached by a woman who was willing to not only share her own experience, but what she was doing as a result. So she felt confident to approach us to tell her story, her personal story, and what she's trying to do to tackle this problem, because she saw these three-part series. It started last year when she received a phone call from a male friend. He told me that I was on Pornhub. Of course, my first reaction was that it must be a mistake. How could it be me? This is Tisiphone. It's not her real name, nor her real voice. If you know your Greek mythology, you might have an idea of what her name means. But this is what happens next for Tisiphone. She opens the link sent by her friend, and sure enough, it's a link to a Pornhub video, and she's in it. It's a video shot of her having sex, without her knowledge or permission, back when she was living in the United States. The incident happened maybe seven years ago. I was really young, a teenager. I had no idea that Monster had secretly filmed me until I saw my video on Pornhub. It was really devastating. I consider myself a very strong person and well-educated, but that was the moment when I literally stopped and thought, I can't live anymore, I don't want to live anymore. She then went to the roof of her building and climbed over the fence, ready to take her own life. At that time, it was, for me, the only way to get out of it, because I was so ashamed and I was so scared. I felt like I was betrayed by the whole world. But she didn't take the jump, only because she thought of her family that she would be leaving behind. I survived. Barely. Nowadays, she's tackling image-based abuse head-on. And now you get to learn Tisiphone is a character from Greek mythology. She's one of the Furies, the three goddesses of vengeance and retribution. The real-life Tisiphone worked at a prominent US tech company. Now she's using that experience to develop her own app. And her app is called Electo, named after the sister of the Tisiphone from Greek mythology, who happens to be another one of the Furies. Electo AI is a facial recognition app. It works by scanning users' faces and then searching for their images online. If I say facial recognition apps in China, you might think of the government's mass surveillance system. But the Electo AI system wants to put power in the hands of the individual. We are disrupting not only content policy and revenge porn, but also disrupting facial recognition, making artificial intelligence more human-centered. Instead of relying on big tech platforms to report abusive content, Electo AI enables users to identify such content themselves. Users will also be protected by their own biometric information, and the app will use end-to-end -end encryption. We are doing everything we can to protect users' privacy and make sure that it's not abused by some random third party. We will continue to enhance our algorithm to make sure it can help people. Electo AI will start off with a monthly subscription fee, but Tisiphone hopes to introduce it to big tech companies like Facebook so they could pay for the technology instead of individuals. We need to bring more awareness to this issue. A lot of people don't know they are victims. I'm in the tech industry, I'm an activist, and it happened to me. 
Tisiphone is planning to launch Electo AI before the end of this year. In the meantime, she's still fighting her own case. She had asked a friend in the United States to file a police report on her behalf. You have no idea how hard it was for me to even file a police report. I'm lucky because I speak English, but a lot of Chinese girls don't speak English, and when they go to the Chinese police, they will tell them that this is not under their jurisdiction. Even within the U.S., different states have different laws. Some states choose to criminalize revenge porn, while others don't. But her case was not a priority for the police in the states. Even when you show evidence, most of the time justice is not served. It's really frustrating, and it hurts so much. Eventually, her case was closed because the alleged perpetrator fled to Mexico. So there was nothing they could do about it. It's ridiculous. She tried reaching out to several non-profit organizations for help. None of them responded. Luckily, a law firm was willing to take her case on a pro bono basis. The legal service I am using now, it's because I got in touch with a friend of mine who went to Harvard Law School. She found within her network someone who cared about it. You have to have connections. I'm well educated. I speak three languages, and I am in this situation. Imagine how hard it is for some teenagers or for someone who is not as educated as me. Imagine some helpless young girl. I'm lucky, and even for me, the situation is not looking that good. Most of her intimate content has been removed, but her legal team is now trying to regain copyright of the video from the perpetrator. We need a legislation change. If the content was stolen from you or taken without consent, you should automatically own the intellectual property. A lot of things need to change, and that's what I'm trying to work on with Electo AI. Because this situation has been enabled by technology, and it can only be solved through technology. The reason I'm doing the startup is to help other victims, because I see this as salvation. By helping others, I am doing something that helps me to heal myself as well. we have to talk about the elephant in the room and the discussion about what appears online and who is responsible for it. What are the big tech companies actually doing to stop image-based abuse happening on their platforms? Well, there was a, a group of big tech companies who got together、uh, about a month ago and they pledged to take a number of measures to tackle. Issues around image-based abuse and violence against women. So it's definitely something that it's becoming more relevant. It's still image-based abuse is still not a priority, and especially when it comes to violence against girls and women. So what victims said is that they feel like that these websites need to be more responsive, but at the same time they also need to be more proactive and invest more money on technology that actually identifies these cases before they are brought up. So I would say that there is a long way. The first step is probably acknowledging that this is a major problem and that it needs to be a priority. If any of what you've just heard sounds familiar to you or to your friends, please remember there is support and help available for you. In Hong Kong, search online for the Rain Lily Sexual Violence Helpline. In Singapore, 
The Gender Equality Advocacy Group AWARE is at aware.org.sg. In South Korea, search for the Korea Cyber Sexual Violence Center at cyber-lion.com. In the Philippines, you can search for saferkidsph.org. No matter where you are, there is always support and there is always someone willing to hear your story. You can find the full three-part series on the South China Morning Post website. The easiest way is to Google the words SCMP and image-based abuse. Then click on the headline, Stolen Privacy, The Rise of Image-Based Abuse in Asia. My name is Laura Westbrook. Thank you for listening. This project was conceived and coordinated by Raquel Cavallo. Script adaptation and sound production by Jared Watt and Jasmine Sir. Voice actors were Reina De Luna, Jasmine Sir, and Clark Ainsworth. Produced here in Hong Kong for the South China Morning Post. Thank you.